This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are finally back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. And yes, finally, as we have had a long summer break between a need to engage in a bunch of other responsibilities I had over the summer, we only put out one real episode in the last couple of months. That was, of course, the great Jason Greenblatt, the architect of the Abraham Accords. But now we are ready to jump back in to a terrific schedule of amazing guests, beginning with the iconic journalist, Mati Friedman. Mati actually is someone I knew as a young teenager some 30 years ago in Baltimore, Maryland, where we had a brief connection and we reunited after all those years for today's conversation. Mati has become one of the premier journalists and chroniclers of Israeli life. He's broken ground in a variety of arenas. He's a fantastic writer, a storyteller, and someone who penetrates the soul of the Jewish people in the Jewish homeland. So extremely excited to bring you Mati this week and some other fabulous guests in the weeks to come. Meanwhile, a reminder, and of course we need a reminder after all these weeks and even months of absence, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, whatever platform you prefer. Spread the word to your friends and family so we continue to grow this wonderful listening audience. And now, to our conversation with journalist, author, and deeply probing thinker in the land of Israel, Mati Friedman. We are here with author and journalist Mati Friedman. And the uh, the fun part for me here is that Mati is somebody I knew briefly around uh, 30 or so years ago. We're not going to get too deep into the math, but uh, he had a brief stint with his family as a child uh, in Baltimore where I lived, and we got to know each other a little bit then, his sister as well, and uh, maybe we'll get into that. But first of all, how are you, Mati? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for joining, and uh, you're coming to us from a uh, much more exciting place than I am, which is Jerusalem. And uh, that's, I'm sure we'll, we'll figure out how you got there at some point, but uh, I know you didn't start there. You started as the accent will betray somewhere further West and further North. So tell us a little bit about your uh, origins. Sure. I was born in Toronto, uh, born and raised. I spent one year living in the United States. That was in Baltimore, which is when we met in the early 1990s but lived in Toronto. And then when I was 17, I came to Israel intending to be here for a year and never left. That was 27 years ago. So um, I guess I'm staying. Now I live in Jerusalem. Uh, That's the short version of this. And just to unpack it a little bit. So your family, were they longtime Torontonians or uh, Canadians? What, What brought your family there originally? Yeah, my mom's Canadian and my dad's a New Yorker. And um, he ended up in Canada as a university professor, first as a university student and then as a teacher and, um, and stayed. Still to this day, he considers himself a New Yorker. 
but he actually lived in Canada for most of his adult life. My parents also live in Israel now. So it's kind of academic, the question of whether they're Canadian or American. Now they live in a town called Naharia, which is in Israel on the coast, just south of the border with Lebanon. What kind of professor uh, was your father? He taught the philosophy of religion. Interesting. Okay. What, and what was his kind of specialty or area of interest? He specialized in people like Spinoza and Kierkegaard. I can't go too deep into it because I think as the child of a philosophy professor, I developed an allergy to any abstract thinking. So I can't claim to understand any of it and uh, went off to become a reporter and to deal with very concrete things that are easy to touch uh, and easy to understand. But those were those were his guys. He did a lot of Maimonides as well, a lot of Rambam, particularly the Guide to the Perplex. So you mentioned that you spent one year in Baltimore. Obviously, that's when we met. What was he doing? Was he a visiting professor that year? He had a sabbatical and he wasn't a visiting professor at any of the institutions in Baltimore, but we wanted to be within kind of more or less uh, easy driving range of New York where my grandmother was when she was still alive. And we chose Baltimore. My parents chose Baltimore. I didn't have much to do with it. They chose it pretty randomly. I think they just didn't want to be in New York and they wanted to be able to drive, you know, a relative short um, amount of time. And, and we ended up in Baltimore. They, I think they'd read a magazine article claiming that Baltimore was the most livable city in America. <laughs> was that the National Enquirer? What magazine was that? Which in retrospect, right, is absolutely <laughs> nonsense. But I guess by the time we figured it out, it was too late and we were there. And it was a very, uh, very strange year. I had a great time that year, but uh, it was really my only taste of living in the United States. Uh, it's kind of a strange country, <laughs> but I, I had fun, met nice people like you, and then went back to Toronto at the end of it. It's year. funny, you know, at that age, I guess I was maybe 13, 14. I don't know exactly how old it was, maybe a drop older, but uh, you don't really ask like, hey, so what are you doing here? You know, you know like, ask like, why is your family randomly here for you? You just assume that people are there and. You just, you know, live your own life. It's just a kind of pretty, you know, tunnel vision, I guess, at that age. Totally. It was supposed to be an adventure. I think my parents wanted to take a year off and go somewhere interesting. And in retrospect, I, I guess it would probably would have been more interesting to go to Salt Lake City or, you know, Boulder, Colorado or something. But uh, we ended up in exotic Baltimore. <laughs> exotic Baltimore. The truth is, I've never forgotten it. It was a year that made a big impression on me. Amazing. So now, fast forwarding, 17 years old, you went to Israel. Was that for a year of yeshiva study? What was the uh, the trip to Israel about? It was a year to work on a kibbutz. I had been in Israel on a summer program the summer after 11th grade. And one of my counselors on that program told me that she had a brother who lived on a religious kibbutz. And I said, I, I didn't know that such a thing existed. And it sounded really cool. So I wrote him a letter. I, when I got back to Toronto, I was um, in my last year of high school and I wrote him a letter. It was 1994. So it was still letters. And I mailed this letter saying, hi, my name's Mati. You know, I'd like to come work on your kibbutz. And basically wrote back saying, you know, no one really does that. But if you want to come and work for free, um, we're not going to tell you not to come. And that's how I ended up on uh, a kibbutz called Ma'ale Gilboa, which is about two hours north of Jerusalem on Mount Gilboa, famous as the place where King Saul uh, fell on his sword. And by the time I got there in 1995, there was this very small, basically failing religious kibbutz with fewer than 30 families called Ma'ale Gilboa. And it was an absolutely wonderful place. And the people were so great. And because it was so small, they were really happy to have anyone there, like someone come. And um, I had a guitar and that made me very useful to the kibbutz kids. And I was 17 years old and, and really kind of changed my life. And within a very short period of time after arriving, I decided that I wasn't going to go back. And uh, basically, I've been here ever since, not on the kibbutz. I stayed on the kibbutz for 
I guess about four or five years, my parents also eventually ended up moving to the same kibbutz and wow. my sister. And we all stayed there for a couple of years and then moved, my parents moved to Nairia and, and my sister and I ended up in Jerusalem. But yeah, been here since I was 17. And it's in large part, thanks to that wonderful year milking cows on kibbutz Madagiba. So interesting. I mean, what about that kibbutz did you find compelling, especially because it sounds like there was maybe not a single other person your age <laughs> at the time, or very few. There were a few. There were very, very few. And um, and the people who were there were wonderful. Kibbutz Nikim aren't typically very friendly. It's not actually that they're snobs. It's that they're very shy because you grew up in a small community and you're just not used to meeting people who you don't know. But on Manegidwa, because it was so small, the kids, the kibbutz kids were really desperate for, you know, any social, you know, addition to their scene. And after some initial suspicion, they were really, really welcoming. And, and having a guitar made me very useful. They liked to sing. And there was no one else at the time who could play the guitar. So I made myself useful by playing guitar. I learned all the Hebrew songs. I didn't really know Hebrew at the time. And I, but I learned the songs and then uh, kind of became part of their social world. And eventually... I went into the army with the kids from the kibbutz who were about to go into the army. And I've been in touch with that place and, and those people since then. And my wife is also from a religious kibbutz that's next to Mare Gidboa. So my in-laws live on one of the religious kibbutzim in that same area. And I've been involved with that little corner of Israel since I arrived in 1995. It's funny that now, you know, Mare Gilboa, I believe as a Hezder Yeshiva there, I don't know if it's on the kibbutz or there's maybe a town nearby. But I've heard of Americans actually going there in rec- only in recent years, though. Yeah, there's there's a small um, yeshiva which actually isn't Hester, and they're very Not they're very like insistent on that point because Hester guys do half of the military service that everyone else does. This is called Shiluv, which came out of the religious kibbutz movement, and they were very insistent that their guys would do as much military service as everyone else, meaning three years. So you do a year in yeshiva, and then you go to the army for a period of time, back to the yeshiva for a while, and then back to the army, but it's full service, not partial service like Hester. But it is a, it is a, an arrangement that allows you to combine Torah study with army service in the same, in kind of the same way. And in recent years, it has become, I don't know if popular is the right word, but, word, but definitely uh, you hear about Americans going to that yeshiva. It's a very liberal, um, like a very serious and very liberal yeshiva. The religious kibbutz movement has a lot to offer. They've always been very, very moderate. They try to you know, incorporate the ideals of Torah study with labor Zionism and service. And the religious kibbutz is kind of an underappreciated segment of Israeli society. I feel very lucky to have landed there completely by mistake when I was 17. I imagine they're mostly now all privatized or largely, right? Uh, yes, although a few of them are still totally socialist, like my wife's kibbutz, which, which is Steliyahu. And uh, Kibbutz Yavne, which is another big religious kibbutz, they're also where there's also yeshiva. They're also, or other, I guess the yeshiva is not on the kibbutz, but there's a yeshiva that is called Karen Yavne, which is um, nearby. Um, that's also socialist. But like most of the other kibbutzim, they've yes, I mean many of most have become privatized, meaning that you live on a kibbutz, but it, you uh, make your own salary and you don't have to submit any family decision to the you know, to the assembly of, of members, that lifestyle has kind of fallen on hard times and is basically gone at this point. Well, you're, it sounds like your wife grew up with that, which is fascinating. She did. And, and, and the truth is her kibbutz has not been privatized, although they are kind of heading in that direction. But you know, they um, give according to their abilities and receive according to their needs. And her father is the kibbutz electrician and her mother was a teacher for many, many years. And she's now retired. And um, definitely she grew up 
not sleeping in a children's house because most of the religious kibbutzim got rid of the communal sleeping arrangement pretty early, but she definitely grew up with the same 20 kids from age zero until age 18, uh, very much in the kibbutz style. Yeah, which to me seems really great and interesting and to someone who experienced it seems less great. <laughs> but uh, it's still, in my opinion, one of the greatest ideas ever put into practice, the kibbutz movement, and its time has passed, unfortunately. But uh, I, I think we haven't found a better idea to replace it at the center of the Israeli consciousness. And uh, personally, I miss it. So it sounds like you were really drawn to Israel as a result of this early experience. And you knew early on, within a matter of months, that you were going to stay. You must have found something in Israel that was perhaps missing in the West or in Canada or wherever else you had been, Baltimore, for example, that it was kind of filling a void or this was, this was drawing you in, in some way. What do you think it was at that early, pretty formative age that made you say, Hey, I want to link my, you know, myself to this place, to this land forever. Yeah. I don't know if I knew what forever meant when I was 17, but um, a few things were going on. Not all of them. I think I could really understand at the time, but a lot of it was just the energy of the country. Like the, the country has this incredible electricity and it's really, it's alive and kicking and um, it's not like Toronto, which is, you know, a very nice place, but uh, it's not, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, the same kind of fuel. And I really clued into it immediately. And it just was exciting and amazing and seemed to be going places. And, and I love that about it. Also, I was, I never liked being outside of the mainstream. So in Toronto, I was, I went to a public school, but I wore a kippah at public school and we were pretty serious about Judaism, but I never wanted to just live in a Jewish community and kind of accept what that meant in terms of the professions that I was going to be able to practice and where I was going to be able to live and the way I was going to be able to raise my kids. But the other option in Toronto was giving up on Judaism and becoming part of the mainstream and then watching this great religious tradition kind of fade away as you assimilate into the mainstream. And in retrospect, I think Israel offered a way out of that problem, which is a country where the mainstream is Jewish. So you can express your Judaism here by going to shul, which I do, or by and keeping kosher and, uh, um, you know, learning Jewish texts. And you can also express Judaism by ordering pizza in Hebrew and paying taxes to a Jewish government and, uh, you know, struggling with what it means to exercise power in a, in a moral way, you know, based on our own religious tradition. And that's, that's Judaism as applied in real life. And I think I like that. I don't think I would have been able to explain any of this when I was 17, but I think that's part <laughs> of what was going on. Fascinating. So you went, it sounds like you went to the army, I guess, with this group of people. What did you do in the army? Did you, uh, because I know obviously journalism would later or perhaps soon uh, become a major part of who you were. Uh, did you do that at all in the army or you kind of went a traditional route? No, the army, I mean, I probably would have if they had offered it to me, but the army at that time, maybe it's changed, although I doubt it, didn't know what to do with anyone's individual talents. So if I you know, you think that if someone comes in with really good English and uh, you might want to use them for something, you know, that involved English, but they didn't. Luckily for me, I think, um, in retrospect, they sent me to the infantry because I had the right physical profile and that's what they needed, I guess. So they sent me to uh, a unit called Nahal, which is an infantry brigade. And in that brigade, I um, was in a specialized unit that, that did anti-tank warfare. And I spent, um, yeah, almost three years doing that and hated most of it. But in retrospect, it was a great experience. It kind of got me into Israeli society. It really taught me a lot about Israel and the Middle East. It allowed me to look anyone in Israel in the eyes and not feel like a newcomer. If you miss army service, you're always kind of at a disadvantage here. 
And, and I wasn't. So, you know, at 21, I was basically like everyone else. And my Hebrew was, was good, although it was pretty um, like polluted with dirty army slang because I'd learned much of my Hebrew in the army without realizing <laughs> that a lot of that Hebrew you can't use in polite company. And I had to kind of purify it as a university student. But it was a great experience. I and mean, some of it was, again, awful and scary. But I made amazing friends who I'm still in touch with to this day and really earned a place in Israeli society that's allowed me to do everything that I've done since then. And of course, that experience, which was in the late 1990s, when Israel was involved in the slow-scale guerrilla conflict with Hezbollah in South Lebanon, that eventually ended up becoming a book that I wrote called Pumpkin Flowers, which um, was an attempt by me to process my own experiences, but actually ended up being the first book written about that time at all, like not just in English, but in Hebrew. So I ended up seeing something really interesting also by mistake, like I just blundered into it, of course, not, you know, as a 17-year-old Canadian, not really knowing what I was doing or even really where I was. I was going to ask what was going on in the broader Israeli climate when you were in the army. I guess this is pre-second intifada? It's exactly before. It's just right before. It's the late 1990s, so it's still kind of the heyday of the peace idea. Rabin had been assassinated in 1995, and then Netanyahu was the prime minister, and then Barak came to power in 1999. And the army was engaged in this war in South Lebanon with Hezbollah, but it really seemed like the last war of the 20th century. The problems seemed to be on their way to being solved. And it was the 90s, which was a pretty optimistic time. And the Soviet Union had collapsed and was replaced by democracies. That's how we understood it. And Bill Clinton was the president and things seemed to be going, you know, in the right, in the right direction. And the peace process for me was really kind of a foregone conclusion. There was going to be some kind of territorial compromise and then peace. And uh, that all made sense if you came from a place like uh, Canada but none of it worked out. And in, in 2000, everything kind of falls apart. Israel withdraws from Lebanon, ending this strange war that I participated in. And Hezbollah takes over southern Lebanon and uh, things don't get any better. And then in the, in the fall of that same year, 2000, the same year I got out of the army, um, there's the Camp David peace talks, which collapse. And then the beginning of, the, of what becomes known as the Second Intifada, which is this incredible wave of terrorism that hits Israel. And cafes start blowing up and buses start blowing up. And I was a student at Hebrew University studying Islamic studies when Palestinian suicide bombers, actually it wasn't a suicide bomber, it was just a bomber, uh, blew up the cafeteria at Mount Scopus, killed nine people. So the expectations didn't end up panning out. But the, that moment in the late 1990s, was a very interesting one for Israel. It's really a turning point. And a lot of it has to do with what happened in Lebanon, which is really a memory that almost everyone has suppressed. No one really thinks about it. It's a war that didn't even have a name until very recently. And it's really a war that kind of formed a generation of Israelis, people my age, but went completely unnoticed by people writing history. That's changed in part, I think, thanks to this book that I wrote, not understanding that, again, that this was an important chapter that hadn't yet been explored. I was mostly concerned with my own experience when I started writing it, but um, but that's what ended up happening in, happening in the late 1990s. And then most of what I thought about the Middle East and the trajectory of events in Israel turned out to be wrong. As we've seen over the past 22 years, things have gone in a very different direction. Better, I think, in some ways. The country's better off in some ways than it was. And um, and worse, in other ways, you know, our, our hopes for peace and a kind of utopian resolution of this conflict have obviously not, it hasn't worked out that way. So were you studying, you said you were studying Islamic studies. Was your goal originally to do something with the peace process or something with international relations? Or when did journalism come onto the uh, map? Yeah, if you look at my eighth grade yearbook in Toronto, and there's a really nerdy picture of me, and then underneath it, it says, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote journalist. I don't think I really knew what that meant, but it definitely was an idea that I always had. Before I went into the army in 1997, I did an internship at a magazine called the Jerusalem Report, 
which uh, was a great English language news magazine that was published from Jerusalem. And um, so I had a kind of background, not much, of course, in journalism. And um, I had the idea that maybe that's what I would do. Although there was a time when I thought I'd be a farmer. That seemed like a better... <laughs> Profession, maybe it was a better profession. What was that, the first week on the kibbutz? <laughs> yeah, maybe the first year on the kibbutz, actually. Huh. Uh, maybe even beyond. But um, I went to study Islamic studies mainly because of what happened in Lebanon, which is that I realized that I had no idea where I was. So I came to Israel with this very Jewish story about, you know, the kibbutz and Israel. And I read, you know, A.D. Gordon and all the great Zionist thinkers, Achad Am. And so I had certain ideas about the place that I was going to. And, and the ideas had very little to do with the Middle East, like very little to do with Islam and and this part of the world. And then in Lebanon, I found myself fighting Shia Muslim guerrillas. I didn't know what Shia Muslims were. Our allies in South Lebanon were Arabic-speaking Christians. I did not know that there were Arabic-speaking Christians until uh, until I met them. So obviously, I'd moved to a place that I didn't understand. And then I went to study it, just to see if I could figure out what was going on. I wanted to know Arabic, and I wanted to understand what Islam was. And that's why I ended up in the uh, Middle Eastern Studies, Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies faculty at Hebrew University. Immediately after I got out of the army, I got out in the spring of 2000 and was already on the campus that fall. So it was really a quest to kind of understand your environment. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously the, the Zionist stories that I came with, which were important, and I still think they're important, were not going to be enough to understand what had just happened in Lebanon and what was happening on the streets around me. Like at the time, really, buses were blowing up and my very Western ideas about progress were really being assaulted from all from all sides by the Middle East, which obviously had plans different than the ones that I had thought were relevant. I mean, a year later, it's 9-11, people from this part of the world you know, attacked the United States and then America's in Afghanistan and America's in Iraq and the whole region takes a completely different turn. And I want to be able to understand it. I can't claim to have succeeded by the way, but, uh, but I certainly gave it a shot. What do you feel were kind of like the, the premises that you entered with? Maybe they were overly romanticized or maybe certain beliefs about human nature or, or the desire for freedom. I mean, what, what about the region did you misapprehend and did you learn about or become, uh, you know, disabused of? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I certainly think that if you grow up in a country like Canada or in certain parts of the United States, and you assume that progress at the time might have changed, but certainly in the 90s, you assume that progress was a given, like the world was moving toward a better place. The arc of history is long, but bends towards justice, as they say. And you just assume that that's true. I didn't even think that it's possible that it wasn't true or that people did not want progress as I understood progress. And my uh, my assumption was that the world was on its way to being a better place and that that would necessarily happen because people are basically like Canadians and they want you know some kind of constructive uh, solution to their problems. And um, and ultimately, we, we have to accept, and I think most of us have accepted it at this point, that many people think about their lives in a very different way and have different expectations and different goals. And you, know, you might imagine that if you knock out the dictatorship in Iraq, Iraqis will want their country to turn into an American-style democracy. But if you create a vacuum in Iraq, you might discover that many Iraqis have different ideas about what they want. And we've seen all this play out so many times in the past 20 years that you know, it's kind of impossible to, to deny that these 90s ideas about progress and peace, and they have very little basis in reality. Unfortunately, they can't be used as a framework for understanding the world. And we have to kind of be prepared for the worst and understand that um, conflict might be the basic state of nature for humans. And even when you know human beings don't have a real war, they tend to generate conflicts where there are none. 
for example, in the United States right now, like there's no war in America. America has no natural enemies. It has endless natural resources. It's next to Canada. It has lots of oceans on either side. And yet um, Americans are generating conflict among each other. So all of this is very disturbing and suggests something about human nature that I think none of us really, you know, wanted to believe in the 1990s. And of course, the durability of, of, of the hatred of Jews is part of it. Like if you grew up in the 1990s, you thought that was on its way out and that this was kind of a story that our grandparents had told, but it's much more durable than we thought. And these problems with humanity are hard to solve, maybe impossible to solve. So it's a very different mindset than most of us had in, in the 1990s. Another thing that I learned, which is I think very important about Israeli society is that the story of Israel is not primarily a story about Europe. Um, if you look at Israel's population, you'll see that the numbers are a bit fuzzy, but at least half of the Jews in Israel have roots in the Islamic world. They don't come from Warsaw. They don't come from Vienna. Um, they come from Casablanca and Yemen and Syria, half. And we can't understand Israel without admitting that that's central. And yet we tell this very European story about Israel. So it's Herzl and pogroms and the kibbutz and, and the Shoah. But, um, but half of the Jews in Israel have very little to do with that story. And they have a very deep Jewish history uh, in fact, in many cases, an older Jewish history than the Jews of um, of Europe, but it's very different than our story. And when you move to Israel, and you, if you're looking at the country with your eyes open, then you understand that the story of Israel is is a story about Judaism in the Islamic world, and uh, much less so a story about Judaism in Europe. And that makes it harder to understand for Jews from North America, most of whom are of European extraction, most of whom are Ashkenazim. The Israeli Jewish world is much more Middle Eastern and North African, and it makes it very, very different. And that is also something that I've had to come to terms with living here. And I've written about it quite a bit over the past few years, because I think it's the key part of the misunderstanding between you know, people who live here and people who observe the country from the outside. As this young person who is quickly shifting your assumptions about uh, really basic human nature, in a sense, and, and certainly your environment. Was it difficult to avoid becoming cynical? How did you find yourself changing towards your own political understandings, your own, again, awareness of where you were and who you were surrounded by? I definitely came to see the world in a, in a less optimistic lens. Yeah, I might call it cynical. I guess some would call it realistic. But, um, but certainly this kind of blithe assumption that that everyone wants the same thing. And ultimately, we're all moving in the right direction. I don't think there are very, very many people in the West who still think that in 2022. And a lot of it has to do with events in the Middle East, like the way the Iraq invasion played out and the way the Afghanistan intervention played out. And a lot of it has to do with just looking at American society now and, you know, seems not to be in great shape. And, and, and people have become very kind of yeah, I mean, it's the 90s from 2022 seemed like an incredibly idealistic time, you know, very naive in terms of the culture, the art. I, we're in a much more cynical time. That's for sure. Part of it has to do with social media. Part of it has to do with the way none of our plans have worked and people have kind of lost faith in our ability to solve our problems through politics. And it's kind of a darker moment in, um, in the mind of the West, whether or not that's rational, whether that actually based on a rational analysis of what's going on, I'm not sure. But certainly in terms of the, the state of mind, it's a much darker place than, than it was in 1997 or 1995 when I moved to Israel. So when did you start writing? Did you get into journalism right away or was it more the, the books, the, the longer? You mentioned that you wrote this kind of reflective work, the, the pumpkin flowers to kind of process your own army experience, which ended up also kind of breaking open an awareness of 
this unique conflict that wasn't really given its due. Where did your career go and, and when did you start writing and for whom? So I'd done this internship for the Jerusalem Report uh, before going into the army. Basically, it was a way to kill time before the army got around to drafting me in the summer of 1997. And then I wrote a piece or two for them while I was in the army, which I wasn't allowed to do. And luckily, no one noticed because I could have gotten into trouble, including a piece from Lebanon. Uh, and then when I got out of the army, I freelanced for them for a while when I was in university and then got hired uh, by them in 2003. That was my first journalistic job. I did it for about three years and it was a wonderful place. They had great journalists working there at the time. It was really kind of every great English speaking journalist in the country was there uh, at some point or, or another, including Yossi Klein Levy and, um, Isabel Kirshner, who now writes for The Times, and David Horvitz, who's the editor of The Times of Israel, and uh, Gershom Gornberg, who's written a bunch of books. And, and there are other, other people who were there as well who were excellent. And it was a really an, am an amazing place to get a journalistic education. And then in the summer of 2006, when the war broke out in Lebanon that summer, that what we call the Second Lebanon War, I got hired temporarily at first by the AP, by the Associated Press, which is the big American news agency to cover that war. So I left the report, went to the AP and ended up staying there for about five and a half years in the Jerusalem Bureau of the AP and then left there for various reasons, <laughs> some of which I've written about at the very end of 2011. And basically I spent a bit of time uh, at the, the first crew that set up the Times of Israel that year and then went off to do my own thing. And since then, that's what I've been doing. So I've written four books and I've written for a bunch of different places. I spent a few years as an op-ed contributor at the New York Times and I write right now for Tablet on a regular basis. And I write for Smithsonian Magazine and for The Atlantic a bit, but I've been a freelancer more or less for the past decade. Fantastic. So I want to go through it. I've, I've gotten to see a little bit about some of your books. I haven't read any of them in full, but I've read uh, a lot of your articles and reviews and, and I've definitely uh, enjoyed kind of watching your thoughts unfold on Twitter as well, uh, where you have an active presence. So your books are really eclectic and really uh, you know, cover a, a pretty wide range of topics within Israeli society, politics, culture. And as you noted earlier, they have broken ground and some really interesting arenas. So take me through a little bit about you know, how you decided, I guess the first book presumably was about Lebanon, but what's been your process? Take me through each of the books and where each one has come from and what it has attempted to accomplish. So when I write a book, I am looking for a small, seemingly marginal story that says something really big about Israel or about the Jewish people or about humanity. And that's what I was taught to do at the Jerusalem Report, which was a magazine where we looked for kind of offbeat stories. And um, that's what I've done with the books too. So the Aleppo Codex, which was the first book that I wrote, started because I was covering archaeology for the AP as a way of avoiding covering the conflicts, like as a way of getting out of actual news coverage. And I just realized that there's a really large American audience for stories about ancient history in the Holy Land. You know, anything that you can write about King David, Jesus, the Romans, it's gold. So I had my eyes open for those stories. And I saw just one day in the summer of 2008, I was in the Israel Museum and I found the Aleppo Codex. Like, you know, I discovered the Aleppo Codex, which was already <laughs> in the museums. And I remember reading the labels and just, I'd never heard of it. And it seemed to be the most important Jewish manuscript. And yet I'd never heard of it. And then I wrote an article about it for the AP. Most of that article is completely wrong in retrospect. And then I tried to write a book about it and no one would answer my phone calls. And I realized that there was some reason that no one was answering my phone calls. There's a story. And that ended up being my first book, which is about the most 
accurate copy of the Bible in Hebrew, which is called the Aleppo Codex. And it's a very strange journey through about a thousand years of Middle Eastern history. And most specifically, it's journey through the 20th century Middle East when it's torn from its hiding place in Aleppo. And part of it goes missing in kind of nefarious circumstances. And I investigated the fate of the missing pages of the Aleppo Codex and um, learned a lot about Jewish life in the Arab world and Jews of Aleppo, one of the greatest Jewish communities of all time. I really kind of immersed myself in the lives of the Jews of Islam, which was a world that I really didn't know about, but a million Jews were native to the Islamic world in the 1940s. Baghdad in the 40s was, according to some estimates, one-third Jewish. And I didn't know about any of that, and that book really introduced me to it. The second book I wrote was called Pumpkin Flowers, which was a military memoir that I originally tried to write after getting out of the army in 2000, after I'd finished this thing in Lebanon, I got out of the army right around the same time that the army pulled out of South Lebanon and blew up all of the outposts in South Lebanon. And I wrote this book, which was an attempt to use my own experiences and the experiences of a few other soldiers who'd served at this one outpost called Outpost Pumpkin, use those experiences to understand this very strange war, which in many ways foreshadowed the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The war in Lebanon was really the prologue to the 20th century. And that makes it very interesting. And that book is about that. And, and as I mentioned, when I wrote it, I was thinking basically about processing my own experiences, but it did turn out to be, I mean, the first book written about that time in English for sure, but also really the first book that really tackled the whole idea of the security zone in Lebanon, even for Israelis. And it made a big impression in Hebrew and got a quite an amazing response here, which is really beyond the dreams of any immigrant to Israel to you know not just write about the country in English, but actually to be part of the Hebrew did you write the book in Hebrew? I wrote the book in English and then edited the Hebrew translation, which is what I've done with all of my books. And um, it really, um, you know, it was read by a lot of people, a lot of people in the army, a lot of people in general. And I, it ultimately led to a documentary series that I helped produce two years ago about the Lebanon experience called The War With No Name. And um, yeah, it ended up being a real, a real adventure. And um, yeah, it's just amazing to have been able to write something that made sense to Israelis that really touched people from Israel. I want to ask you what about that particular conflict? What do you think about it was so paradigmatic in a sense? Because it sounds like there's so much bound up in it that presaged what came later. What was there? In the 90s, we didn't even recognize that what was going on in South Lebanon was a war because we had this idea that wars looked like the Six Day War or maybe the Second World War and big movement of forces and peace treaties and surrenders. And what was going on in the 1990s just seemed weird. It was just this non-state actor called Hezbollah, which wasn't a country, but it was an army in a failed country. And this kind of strange and very inclusive war that included a lot of things that are completely common now, but were revolutionary at the time, like the use of media, the use of video, uh, really starts in South Lebanon in the 1990s. The suicide bomber is pioneered by Hezbollah in the 1980s. IEDs, which was a term that didn't exist at the time, but IEDs are really perfected by Hezbollah against us in South Lebanon. And all, all of these aspects of warfare are really kind of repeated with you know, great success, I guess you could say, against the Americans uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the kind of warfare that we experienced in Lebanon in the 90s, which we didn't even call warfare really, is obviously the war of the 21st century. South Lebanon ended up being the laboratory where 21st century warfare was developed. And uh, we didn't understand that at the time, but that's what it was. And that's what makes that experience bigger than just a minor war experience by a few Israeli infantrymen. It really echoes the American experience in a very eerie way. For example, the Lebanon thing lasts for 18 years and ends with a withdrawal. 
And it's pretty clear that Israel goes in with ideas that are completely unrealistic and then gets involved in all kinds of conflicts that it didn't expect. And instead of cutting its losses, it kind of gets, it digs in deeper and gets in more trouble. The more trouble you're in, the deeper in trouble you get. And uh, that's what happens in Lebanon until finally it just becomes too much. And um, the Ehud Barak government pulls everyone out and uh, the other side declares victory. And that all sounds very familiar if you're an American following you know, the wars in the Middle East of the past 20 years, but it had never happened before when it happened to us in the 90s. So that's what makes that experience kind of a paradigm. It was really the genesis of like asymmetric warfare and unconventional. Or- I mean, there are other examples. There are examples like the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan. And of course, there have always been kind of guerrilla conflicts. In the Vietnam, right? Vietnam. But what made this different was really the tactics, you know, the use of the use of media in particular. Hezbollah really pioneered it. Those guys were geniuses at using media to inflate non-existent events into major PR victories suicide, radical Islam, actors that weren't states, right? In Vietnam, it's North Vietnam, but Hezbollah isn't a country. And all of that kind of adds up into something that's very, very familiar to us now, but was completely new at the time. So you wrote that, uh, and it seems like that really catapulted you to a new place in terms of your acceptance within Israeli society and your expertise, in a sense, on understanding the role of, you know, or the conflict that was around you. And did people start coming to you as a voice on these topics and, and asking for your analysis and in other forums? The world of Israeli journalism and the world of English language journalism are really quite separate. So I didn't become really involved in the world of Hebrew language journalism, but certainly on this particular topic, I was one of the few people who'd ever written anything about it. And yeah, I started getting really weird phone calls from people, amazing phone calls from people who just wanted to talk about Lebanon, who'd never seen any reflection of their own experiences in, in the 20 years that had passed since the withdrawal from Lebanon. And ultimately, it ended, it ended up leading to this documentary series, which also made a big impression. And it was the documentary series, which is called The War With No Name, that actually helped lead the government to give it a name. Last year, this war, which never had a name in South Lebanon, which we just referred to as Lebanon or as the security zone, it was given an official name and it was given an official military ribbon and it was officially declared to have happened which um, until last year, it never happened. So if you wanted to know, for example, how many Israeli soldiers were killed in the security zone in South Lebanon, no one knew because that wasn't an event. So the army had never counted because it didn't exist. And that has changed. And I played a small part in it, but I did play a part in it, which is an amazing thing for someone who moved to Israel when they were 17. So then you moved on to write about the Mossad. (laughs) Why? Right, so... It's because of something that we discussed earlier in this conversation, which is my sense that our stories about Israel don't actually explain the country. And in large part, that the stories about Israel don't sufficiently take into account the fact that half of the Jewish population is Middle Eastern and North African. And I I wanted to address that by telling a story about 1948, where there are no Ashkenazim. That's what I decided to do. So, you know, a story about Israel's creation in which all of the characters are Jews from the Islamic world. And I had my eyes open for stories like that. And a guy who I'd spent a lot of time with writing the Aleppo Codex, an old spy who was in his 80s at the time named Rafi Siton. He was an ex-Mossad guy and he was originally from Aleppo and he knew a lot about the Aleppo Codex. And I'd spent a lot of time with him. He suggested that I meet a friend of his who was an even older spy, also retired Mossad, a guy named Itzhak Shoshan. And I went to meet Itzhak Shoshan, who was at the time close to 90. And I interviewed him for hours and hours and hours over several days 
in his little kitchen in Batyam, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. And he told me this story about 1948, about how he'd seen the birth of Israel. And he'd seen it, and it was like no other story about 1948 that I've ever heard. And it was about this small, ad hoc, kind of seat of the pants unit of spies called the Arab Section, which consisted of Jews from the Arab world who were repurposed as spies and sent back into the Arab world. And that's how the Mossad starts. And uh, it was an amazing story. And that became this book called Spies of No Country, which is a story about spies. And it has all the elements of a spy story. It's true, of course. But what it really is, is a story about Israel's double identity and Israel's cover stories and the way we tell one version of our story when something actually completely different is going on. And by that, I mean that we tell a very kind of European-centric story of ourselves when actually it's a Middle Eastern story. And that's, I think, clear to anyone who comes to Israel and just looks around the country. You can tell that it's Middle Eastern, but that has traditionally not been the way we want to think of ourselves. So that's what Spies of No Country is. It's an attempt to make that point by telling a story about spies. So it's fascinating is you've really become kind of, I don't want to say a, an ambassador in a certain way, you know, and here you are, this Ashkenazi, very Ashkenazi, uh, white Torontonian who's become this sort of, you know, megaphone for the Mizrahi culture in Israel, which is just fascinating. Do you ever find yourself just appreciating the irony of that? Absolutely. I mean, for a while, Friedmanim or Friedmans was a slang term for Ashkenazim. Like I have the most, Ash- I have a name that's so Ashkenazi that <laughs> it was like a joke about Ashkenazim. And of course I come from Toronto. And I mean, I remember meeting a Moroccan Jew for the first time. Like I still remember his name and it happened in high school because it was so different from the Jewish world of North America, which is at least 90% Ashkenazi. You know, if you grew up in a North American community, unless it's like on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn where the Syrians live or in certain enclaves, the world is Ashkenazi, and I really only encountered this coming to Israel. And it has enriched my Jewish life to an infinite degree because the Jewish world is so much more interesting than Europe and North America. And there's, you know, it's an incredibly rich story about places that are absolutely wild and fascinating. And I've visited some of them. I mean, I've been to Morocco, I've been to Turkey, I've been to Lebanon, I've been to Cairo, and I've seen the remnants of Jewish life in these places. And, and they have a lot to do with Israel today. In fact, Israel today has a lot more to do with those places, in my opinion, than it does with Warsaw or even with New York. I think if you come to Israel as a Muslim from Beirut, it makes a lot more sense than it does for like a secular American Jew from Baltimore. In what ways? It's Middle Eastern. Like the country works, you know, the the music, the food, the attitude, the approach to religion, uh, just the general like state of mind is very, like if you're a Maronite Christian from Lebanon, Israel makes a lot of sense. I think it's just like, you know, it's kind of bilevant. But if you're, you know, if you've gone through years and years of Jewish summer camp in America, you have other, you know, then Israel's going to be very confusing to you, like, because it's not really a Jewish country as North Americans understand Judaism. It's a very different kind of country. And key to understanding all that is understanding the Jews who came here from the Islamic world, because we treat Israel as if it was a revolution in Jewish history. And in many ways, it was, of course, Jews become sovereign again, and we can run our own affairs. And Israel, of course, is a revolution. But in many ways, Israel is just a continuation of Jewish life in the Islamic world. And for many of the people here, contact with Islam does not begin in 1948. It's the story of their families for you know, many, many centuries before the founding of the state. So they might have moved elsewhere in the Islamic world. Like if you're a Syrian Jew, you moved down the road and you know, now you live in Haifa. Um, and if you're you know, a Jew from Egypt, then you move up the road and now you're living in Ashkelon. But it's not that different. Like you're inside the Islamic world and your life is being formed through contact with Islam. And it's a continuation. And understanding that really makes the country look different. And I think it makes Israel make a lot more sense. In your writing, do you feel a sense of mission to elevate these stories 
because we do tell such a Ashkenormative kind of uh, narrative. Do you feel like you're you're doing in a certain way, a kind of a service or offering a, a sense of redemption after years of you know what, what's often considered to be I don't want to use the word oppression, but certainly you know, bias or exclusion from the public narratives. And yes, even some perhaps internal persecution or discrimination as has been leveled, you know, in terms of the founding and the early years of the state. Do you feel that that you're playing a role? consciously in trying to remediate that? I mean, the, the disdain was real and the kind of insult that people felt coming here from the Middle East with these deep Jewish traditions. And I mean, these were real Jews coming from places like Yemen and Morocco. And then they had their traditions kind of mocked um, and they were told to stop being religious and they were told to stop speaking Arabic. And that insult has lingered and it's real. It's not, it's not anyone's imagination. It was maybe the biggest mistake Israel made. And it still plays out in our politics in many ways. And it's important to understand that when we try to understand Israel, but that's actually not what I'm trying to do. Like I'm not fighting for justice or anything like that. I'm trying to help people understand Israel, including Israelis. And I think that you just can't understand Israel without that. So, you know, other people will do the fighting for justice part of it. And there are, there's a lot of activity on that front, but I don't have that personality. I'm really, I don't have an activist personality. I, I just want people to be able to understand this country. And if we keep telling these stories about the Warsaw ghetto and David Ben-Gurion and the kibbutz, Again and again and again, those are great stories. I love them and they're important, but um, they don't explain the country in 2022. We need to accept that this is a country in the Middle East and it has a lot less to do with Warsaw than it does with Aleppo. And if we understand the story of the Jews who came here from the Middle East, the country, we will find it easier to understand the country. And that's primarily what's motivating. Tell me about your most recent book, which is about Leonard Cohn, the great American composer. That one was uh, definitely threw me off when I saw that you were writing about him. And I'm sure there was good reason, but Explain where he fits into kind of the, the Monty Friedman uh, journalistic theme. Right. Well, this too is a marginal story, like uh, the Aleppo Codex and like Outpost Pumpkin and like these four spies who no one had ever heard of. This is a marginal story. Like very few people outside of Israel know the story. A lot of people in Israel do know the story, by the way, but it's certainly not a key story from the Yom Kippur War. It's not one of the central battles of the Yom Kippur War. It had no impact on the outcome of the Yom Kippur War. It's just this very strange story about a rock star who showed up in Israel at the darkest moment in the country's history since 1948. And he shows up at the front in Sinai and gives one of the weirdest concert tours in pop music history. And I just needed to understand what that was. And I, I sensed that if you could unpack that, you get a deep story about Israel at a moment of crisis, about this great Jewish performer who might be the greatest, you know, one of the great voices of the age, but maybe the great Jewish voice of the diaspora in the 20th century, Leonard Cohen. And you'd get something about the Jewish world, because it's a meeting of this great diaspora voice with these very young Israelis at a moment of crisis. And I sense that there would be some, you know, there's electricity in that story. It's about how art gets made, like what inspires art and how it, how art that can then travel across time and, you know, over in many years and many places and communicate and um, help us rise above ourselves and kind of remind us of other times. And um, that's what it's about. And it took me years to write the book. And uh, it just came out. I started thinking about it in 2009, just so you can understand how slow my uh, thought processes are. <laughs> it just came out a month or two ago. And, but that's, that's what it's about. It's about music. It's about Israel. It's about this war. It's about the nature of art. And it's, it's about Judaism. There's really no way you know, around the fact that it's called the Yom Kippur War. It's a war that breaks out on the Day of Atonement. And the liturgy of Yom Kippur echoes in the war itself, particularly this, you know, the, the famous prayer, which might be the central one in Yom Kippur, which is called Unatanei Tokif, which includes those famous lines, who by fire, who by water, and those lines get picked up by Leonard Cohen and worked into a song that he writes. And 
anyway, that's that's what the book's about. How did you come across uh, this story? In 2009, Corin came for a concert. He showed up in Israel for a concert. This was his resurrection tour when he was already an elderly guy. He'd been really famous in the 60s and 70s and then on and off uh, subsequently. And then he disappeared into a Zen Buddhist monastery and discovered after a few years there that a former manager had stolen all of his money. So he had to go back on the road basically to make money. And then he went back on the road and discovered that you know he could pack stadiums and tens of thousands of people were coming out to see him. And he was just this beloved character and he didn't know. He hadn't realized that. And he has this incredible last act, one of the great last acts of music history. And he's, he becomes like this beloved figure and is performing almost until his death when he was about 80. He has this incredible renaissance. And he came to play a concert in Tel Aviv and Israelis went nuts. The whole country went nuts. And the phone lines crashed when the tickets went on sale. And 50,000 people ultimately came out to see Leonard Cohen play. And this is a pretty small country. And I just couldn't understand exactly why everyone was so excited. And then I saw a story in one of the Israeli daily newspapers about this tour. And the details were a bit fuzzy, but um, people seem to know about it. People seem to remember that at the darkest moment in this country's history, Leonard Cohen showed up with his guitar. And that's where it started. Did you get to interview him? It's funny you should ask. I, of course, was thinking about this book before he died in 2016. And I discovered that my Canadian editor the, the Canadian publisher that published my books, which is called McClellan and Stewart, was also Cohen's publisher. And when I realized that, I said, amazing. I sent an email to my editor to ask him if I could get an interview with Leonard Cohen. And he said, sure, like, I don't see why not. I said, really? I didn't think that was actually possible. But um, he said, just write a pitch for the book, explain exactly what you're thinking of writing. We'll get it to Leonard Cohen's people and hopefully we'll you know, arrange an interview with you pretty soon. And I was thrilled and I could already picture myself interviewing Leonard Cohen. I sent the email. I went to bed. This is the fall of 2016. I woke up the next morning with an email in my inbox. The subject line in the email is holy expletive. And it's just a link to Leonard Cohen's obituary. So I missed him. Just missed him. Yeah. Some might say you killed him. <laughs> Some might say that I killed Leonard Cohen. Yes, by hitting send on that email. Uh, I was pretty surprised. But uh, in the end, I found a manuscript that he'd written about the war, which had never been published, which is probably worth more than an interview with the elderly Leonard Cohen. So I actually managed to find uh, like firsthand, very raw Leonard Cohen impressions, which he wrote immediately after the war. So I can't, I'm sorry I didn't get to interview Leonard Cohen, but I can't complain. How's the reception been for that particular book, which is very different than in a certain way than your others? Uh, the reception has been great. I mean, it came out in Hebrew before it came out in English and people in Israel connected with it very, very deeply. You know, people who'd been in the war, people who remembered seeing Cohen, people just love Leonard Cohen, people here just love Leonard Cohen. Uh, so I got pretty amazing responses there. And I came out in English two months ago, and, and responses have also been great in English. I mean, it's a small story, and um, it does what I do, which is take something very, that seems very marginal, but I think people understand. Like, I, I kind of get what I'm trying to do, and I've received some pretty, um, you know, some pretty great emails from people who really connected with the material. The reviews have been good. So uh, yeah, I can't complain. What's next for you, Mati? What are you working on now? And again, you're writing in various online forums. And again, you have this active Twitter feed, which I always think is great and uh, sharp and incisive and sometimes sardonic, but always piercing. What are your current projects and goals? I don't have another book project on the go at the moment, but I've been doing some long journalism for Smithsonian. I did an article for them about half a year ago about a biblical archaeology dig uh, in southern Israel that has some interesting insights into the accuracy of the Bible. And now I'm doing another story for them about dates, the fruit, as a way of understanding the Middle East. And that will be out, I guess, in a few months. And 
I have a few others on the go for them. And I've been writing features for tablets. Uh, I just published one about a very strange story about a German, possibly a Nazi, who showed up in Israel after the war and tried to build the temple. And uh, it didn't end well. I won't say more than that. So I'm still publishing as many uh, strange and marginal stories as, as I can. And I'm sure eventually there'll be another book. I'm not quite sure what it is at the moment. I feel like the dates one will get a lot of hits accidentally. <laughs> I went to Abu Dhabi to write this story. And um, I typed into Google when I was there dates in Abu Dhabi, because I was looking for, you know, just any, you know, like a date, like museum. They're really into dates there. And I, I, yeah, the, the Google got a Muslim single site, huh? Google search res- <laughs> results were not fruit related. Make sure your wife didn't see your, uh, your, your search. Oh, it, was, it was an accident, honey. Exactly. I'm sure I'm on the Google algorithm now in all kinds of uh, undesirable ways. Vazi, where can people find your work? Is there kind of a, a central clearinghouse with all of your uh, articles or your books or they have to kind of look around on Amazon or, or the individual sites? I have a website. It's just my name, matifriedman.com. Uh, sometimes I even remember to update it, but there are you know reviews, new articles are, I post there and uh, you can order the books from the website. You can also get them on anywhere you get books, preferably from your local independent bookstore. But uh, if necessary, you can order them from, uh, you know, huge evil online distributors that shall remain <laughs> unnamed, whatever, whatever works for you. Fantastic. Mati Friedman, the author, journalist, and uh, an old friend from way back when. Thank you so much for joining us. Ari, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.